This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. On the 14th and 15th of April 2016, the Caldor Centre was proud to co-sponsor a symposium at All Souls College, Oxford, to celebrate the scholarship of Professor Guy Goodwin-Gill. The symposium brought together leading international refugee law scholars and practitioners. The following podcast is a presentation by Dr. Brittany Grain from the University of Sheffield School of Law. Um, okay, thank you for the introduction, Dapo. Um, apologies for being late, but unfortunately it was out of my control, and at least I arrived as predicted. <laughs> so um, I did my DPhil here with Professor Goodwin Gill, finished in 2014. And this was not the topic of my default because I wanted to take a, a bit of a break before I returned to it again to um, try and get it published as a book. Uh, so this is a sort of in-between uh, project. So uh, what I'd like to talk to you today, uh, talk today about is the uh, May 2015 uh, incidents that took place on the Andaman Sea, uh, which was to do with um, mainly Rohingya people who were trying to uh, flee persecution. So. Oh, Ruby, you said it worked. <laughs> I'm not sure how to... Just press it down. Down, oh, yeah. thank you. Okay, perfect. Um, so, in terms of the outline of my talk, um, the plight of the migrants and refugees who are fleeing Burma and Bangladesh by sea received considerably less media attention than the migration in Europe, which is understandable in a way because of the European migration is, is happening on our doorstep. And many of those people are Rohingya who are fleeing persecution. And they're essentially the worst treated group in, in Burma. Um, they're stateless, they've been subjected to decades of displacement. And in its most recent report on Burma, Human Rights Watch said that, uh, described this as, it's this, their systematic oppression, uh, estimating that about one million of them are, are displaced. And in 2014, the government announced a new state action plan that would further entrench the discrimination of these people, and that triggered a new, a large group of migration by sea. And the conditions aboard the boats were terrible, um, they were barely seaworthy with little in terms of navigation equipment, um, the voyages were unsanitary with lots of risks associated with such voyages, um, with death through drowning and starvation and of course there was lots of violence on board the ships as well. And this situation was made a lot worse by the crudely termed game of human ping pong, a representative of Human Rights Watch uh, came up with this term which left about 8,000 people stranded at sea in May 2015. And this was because, as I'm sure you heard about in the news, the Malaysian, Thai and Indonesian authorities were were pushing pushing the boats back. And this is obviously a practical problem, but also in terms of law, um, Asia is, well, many Asian states are described as having rejected refugee law because many of them are not party to the 1951 convention, so it's unclear what sort of protection these people have. So the purpose of this paper is um, to examine whether or not protection exists and what is the scope of that protection. And even though it looks a little bit at the situation in Europe and the type of protection available there, it's not actually a comparative analysis. More so, I take lessons learned and comparisons from... Well, I said it's not comparative when I keep using the word comparison. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I look at Europe a little bit, but focus a lot on, on the Andaman Sea. And the argument I make is that there is certain provisions of international law applicable 
and, and I'd like to go through those with them now. And the practical impact of this research, um, even though most of you are refugee lawyers, um, I've been asked what's the point of this. Uh, of course, it suffers from the shortcomings of international law as a whole. Um, and it's even more difficult to enforce because of the fact that many of these incidents have happened on the sea where there's hardly any witnesses, many of these people have died or are not in a position to take a case. But the arguments could nonetheless be valuable, for example, in a co the context of the Universal Periodic Review or to make it a case in, in um, domestic law. So to give a brief outline, um, first I'll look at refugee law and the pro prohibition of non-refoulement before moving on to human rights law. And I'm facing some particular difficulties with the human rights law question, so I know we have some time for comments. If, if you have any um, suggestions for me in that in that. Uh, respect, I would very much appreciate it. I'll also briefly look at the law of the sea in terms of enforcement jurisdiction, the rights of ships in distress, the obligations to render assistance to persons found in distress, and the law relating to disembarkation, and I'll give some tentative conclusions on what I've come with, up with so far. In terms of refugee law, um, most, that should say most, Asian states are not a party to the Refugee Convention. And there's, we have various reasons have been discussed uh, regarding this, including the Eurocentric character of the Convention, the historic peculiarity of the region, and the ASEAN way, which is described as, um, which encourages non-interference in domestic affairs. Uh, but non-refoulement is customary international law, as you all, as you all know. Um, whether or not this constitutes refoulement, well, I, is is the question that I, I looked at, and. Um, I argue that, that it's not um, for various reasons. It, it accords with the reading of the travaux preparatoire of the Convention, which says that the return of a refugee ship to the high seas is not necessarily a violation of the FUMA. Um, secondly, the high seas do not constitute the frontiers of territories. And I look at different provisions in the Convention to, to sort of understand what is meant by territory in the Convention, and, and generally, well, in all of the articles that I examined, it's, it refers to some sort of control of the state. And by definition, the high seas are beyond the, the control or the jurisdiction of the state. And of course, the refugees um, were, and this is distinguishable from physically bringing someone back to the country of origin, which, as we know, could constitute a And in addition, even though these refugees were exposed to harm and that many of them drowned, this was not on account of the grounds in the Convention. And this is in line with the Convention's object and purpose, which is not to protect all persons from harm, but to protect a particular category of individuals from a particular type of harm, that is, persecution on the grounds specified in the Convention. However, if a pushback operation would leave these people with no option but to return to where they came from or to a third state that would expose them to such harm, this could constitute refoulement. Um, and also if they were referred to another state's territorial seas um, because the sovereignty of the coastal state extends to the territorial sea. In terms of human rights law, as I said before, this is where I would particularly appreciate comments. Uh, the 1966 International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, of course, protects the right to life and the prohibition from cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment. And Thailand and Indonesia are a party to this convention. The other two states involved are not but these provisions have been said to be customary international law. And they could be applicable in two respects. 
First of all, where a state exercises effective control, as we've just heard, outside of its, um, outside of its territory, they can, that state is bound by, by human rights law. But it's unclear, this is the problem I've come across, at, what's, at what precise moment do we say that effective control occurs? So if we look at the Hersey case, it says that effective control began from the moment of boarding. And this is important in this case because some of the, ship, the, some of the ships were never boarded, so it's not clear if there was effective control there. If we also look at the, and I'm definitely going to mispronounce this, the Medvedev case. Actually, if anyone can tell me how to pronounce that, that would also be welcome uh, afterwards. Um, this involved the interception of, uh, by the French authorities of a Cambodian flagged ship. And there was a couple of various little incidents here. When the ship was spotted, a warning was issued. Then warning shots were fired. Then a shot was fired directly at the ship. Then the ship answered by radio and stopped. And then the ship was boarded. And the European Court of Human Rights said that France exercised effective control from the time of its interception until the, the, um, until the, the people involved were tried in France. So they said from the moment of interception, that is effective control. But what, what is interception? So when I looked through the judgment, it appeared to see interception and boarding as two separate things. The language that the court used um, seemed to... Seemed to understand it as two separate things but it wasn't quite clear when the interception began, was it when the shot was fired, was it when the ship was boarded um, or was it when the ship actually stopped and that's important in the context of my paper because in some situations the ships were ordered to turn back, in some situations the ships were forcibly stopped and so in some situations they were forcibly pushed back and in some situations they were boarded. Um, so if you have any suggestion on that, that would be great. Um, also, this notion of effective control, extraterritorial effective control, is relevant in terms of the obligation of non-removal. And I've argued that this obligation of non-removal also applies to pushback operations conducted at sea. Um, so that even though you're not pushing someone from one territory to another, it, it, it goes with the object and purpose of a non-removal obligation. Um, but this again all comes back to effective control and whether or not effective control um, that a state has effective control on these individuals. And of course, that again goes to a factual analysis of each of each individual um, incident. In terms of law of the sea. Um, it is permissible to push back ships carrying migrants present in the territorial seas if they're perceived to be not engaged in innocent passage. And that itself is a debate that I go through in this paper. It's not clear whether we can say that these individuals are engaging in innocent passage or not. But if we take the argument in favour of the pushback operations at its highest, so even if we accept that these people were not engaged in innocent passage and therefore the pushback operations are okay in terms of um, Article 19. There are um, restrictions on the use of force, uh, which, which states that it must be a measure of last resort, it must be proportional, and using the minimum force reasonably necessary. And of course, human rights law is also applicable, as I've just, as I've just uh, laid out. In terms of the rights of ships in distress, it's generally recognised that a foreign vessel in distress has the right of entry into a foreign port in customary international law. And the Rainbow Warrior case tells us that distress is the existence of very exceptional circumstances of extreme urgency involving medical or other considerations of an elementary nature. So 
the situation, so if this ship is, of course, is in distress, that, in theory, gives them a right to enter a port, um, but that would also depend on the nature of the situation and whether or not other options were available. And that approach is consistent with the exceptional nature of the right of entry uh, in, in international law. In terms of obligations to assist people found in distress, Article 98 of, the, of UNCLOS tells us that there is an obligation to render assistance to any person found at sea in danger of being lost and to proceed with all possible speed to give assistance to these persons. And it doesn't matter where that particular vessel is, it applies in all maritime zones and to all vessels, regardless of nationality or status. But international law doesn't stipulate the nature and scope of the assistance to be provided. And in this case, some of the individuals were given rice, water and food and were pushed back out to sea. So an argument could be made by those states, well, that was, that was assistance. Um, but I would argue that that wouldn't satisfy the obligation to render assistance, as the object and purpose of the provision is to prevent the loss of life at sea. And any actions that only marginally prolong life would not be interpreting the Convention in good faith and it would probably fall foul of the principle of effectiveness um, which provides the obligation in the treaty is to produce an outcome that advances the aim of that treaty. In terms of disembarkation, this is my penultimate slide, of course, Professor Goodwin-Gill and uh, Professor McAdam have, have stated that the obligation to rescue people at sea is seriously undermined by the lack of equally rigorous obligation in terms of what to do in ter- uh, regarding disembarkation. And a place, the general understanding is that they should be disembarked at a place of safety, and this has been interpreted as the next port of call. But refusal of disembarkation is not necessarily a breach of refuma. But some have argued, such as Gallagher, that human rights law could be violated, for example, in situations where people are exposed to um, prolonged circumstances in in deteriorating conditions. Um, To conclude, whether or not there's been a violation of the ICCPR depends on whether these authorities were in effective control of the vessels. And I argue that there has not been a breach of of the FUMA in these circumstances. And the states involved were under a duty under the law of the sea to assist these refugees, but it's problematic that we don't know what the nature or scope of that assistance should be, but I argue that the provision of rice or fuel or water would not satisfy that obligation. And it's difficult to say whether there was a duty to rescue, but each situation would need to be examined on its merits, and as I said earlier, because of the lack of evidence that we have about what actually occurred, that would be extremely difficult. Um, so on that really optimistic note, um, <laughs> that concludes my presentation. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much.